You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Jesus has already been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, betrayed and sold out by Judas, and has gone through some illegal trials at the hands of the religious leaders. And in verse 1 of Matthew 27, it says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. The stated goal of these religious leaders was to see Jesus killed. They didn't have, however, the power to put a person to death for any crime. They needed the Roman permission slip. And so they present Jesus to Pilate and their strategy is going to be very clever. They know that Pilate isn't going to want to meddle in issues of religion. And so even though they want to crucify Jesus for claiming to be God, the son and the son of God, they're going to have to present Jesus to Pilate as a tax rejecting revolutionary opposition leading new king who is coming up against the Caesar. Now in verse 3, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. What you're seeing here with Judas is a heavy conscience experiencing intense remorse. This should be no surprise. The gospel writers tell us that there was a moment when Judas actually was inhabited by Satan, that, that Satan entered into this man. When the demons entered into the herd of swine on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, they immediately ran directly into the Sea of Galilee in order to kill themselves. So to see this man take his own life, he must have been under some very intense demonic pressure at this moment. He had betrayed the Messiah, the Son of God. This is not real repentance that we're observing. This is remorse and a pain within his heart, but this is not real repentance. This is what Paul would refer to in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 as worldly sorrow, not a real repentance being produced, but a worldly, not a godly sorrow. So he throws his money down and goes out and hangs himself. But the chief priests taking verse six, the pieces of silver said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. This is fascinating to me to see this level and brand of hypocrisy. They're, here they are wanting to obey very minute traditions and uh, requirements from the law, not realizing that uh, the blood money they're referring to is money that they had used to purchase the death of an innocent man. So they took counsel, verse 7, 
and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So according to scripture, they purchased a field, the potter's field, that they would eventually bury strangers in with the money that Judas had thrown down on the floor of the temple. Now when Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah, he's actually quoting a little from Jeremiah and in one sense mostly from Zechariah. But the gospel writers would often do this, quote from two prophets, but list the quotation from the more prominent of the prophets. And Jeremiah was more prominent and well known than Zechariah. Now, verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor, this being Pilate, asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So Jesus here agrees with the charge. He says, yes, it's as you've said, I am the king of the Jews, but like a lamb before its shearers is silent. Jesus was quiet there before Pilate. It's so fascinating to me because as a believer, Jesus is to be our example, our model. We want to be more like Christ. But I find that so often it's so easy for me to be a self-defender. Even in times where I'm not so innocent, Jesus being completely innocent, even in times where I'm not so innocent, I still want to defend myself. Oh, to become more like Christ who would not even answer a single charge. There are times where we should silence ourselves and allow ourselves to suffer like Christ. Now at the feast, verse 15, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. They had this tradition, sort of a way to, as a uh, the Roman government, for the Roman government to appease the people that they were ruling over. They would release one crowd, usually a political prisoner. And verse 16, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate here is predisposed to release Jesus. He can tell that the religious leaders have delivered Jesus to him out of envy. And not only that, but his wife, now has had some kind of dream that has caused her to suffer, which he is receiving as a warning to release Jesus. So he thinks now that he's providing a way out for himself 
by asking the crowd, do you want me to release Barabbas or do you want me to release Jesus, who is called the Christ? Pilate, as we'll see over and over again in the Gospels, was a man who lacked courage and backbone. He always wanted to please, ultimately, the people. A fear of Caesar, a fear of the religious leaders, a fear of the crowds, a fear of his wife. This man was constantly fearful of man, which led him to doing a horrible thing and making a horrible decision in crucifying Christ. Nonetheless, this was the will of the Lord. Now the chief priest, verse 20, and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the chief priests, the religious leaders, there they are persuading the crowd, influencing them. And the governor, verse 21, again said to them, which of the two do you want me to, to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. This was a wild request from the people. And he said, verse 23, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, which would have caused, again, Pilate to fear. He didn't want a riot to be reported back to Rome. He then took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. So Pilate ignored his convictions, washed his hands, thinking that he would declare his innocence in that way. But he was involved in this. The Lord would hold him responsible. And the people shout, his blood be on us and on our children. Which in one sense, it taking in, taken in another way, can be a beautiful statement to say the blood of Jesus be on us and on our children. But here these people aren't saying the blood of the forgiveness of Christ be on us and on our children. Instead, they are saying and shouting, hey, we're guilty of his death and our children as well. But of course, all of mankind could make that declaration, not just the Jews there in Israel, but every man that has walked on the face of the earth is guilty of the blood of Jesus. But instead, let us have the blood of Jesus upon us and upon our children that we might be forgiven and receive his grace. Now, verse 26, it says, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, scourging is not familiar to us. It's a horrible process. They would put his arms around a post and tie them together in order to tighten up his back, the skin, the muscles. A gruesome whip would come down upon Jesus's flesh. They tried to produce confessions with this scourging. And if you confessed to crimes, the scourging became less intense, but Jesus had nothing to confess. And you can assume that this was a brutal moment in Jesus's life, extreme physical 
torture. Just a horrible moment. The Romans wouldn't even do this to other Romans. And so just a, a horrible event in Jesus's crucifixion account, the scourging of Christ. And they delivered him to be crucified. Then, verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him, up to perhaps 600 soldiers, a ruthless crew. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So everything that these soldiers did to Jesus was designed to make a mockery of him. They stripped him of his clothes, the humility of nakedness. They put a scarlet robe and a crown of thorns and a reed in his hand and bowed to him, mocking the idea that he was the king of the Jews, mocking his royalty. And they spat on him, which was the ultimate sign of disrespect. And the amazing thing, of course, in all of this is that Jesus did not have to endure this brand of mockery and this brand of shame. But Hebrews 12 verse tells us that he despised the shame, that he endured it so that you and I could have life. He would go through this for you and for me. Now, after all of this, they went out, verse 32, and found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled this man to carry his cross. So what you have here is they would sometimes, because a prisoner was so beaten up, they would take the cross beam, not the full upward post, but the post that the arms would be attached to, and they would put it on the back of the person being crucified. Sometimes that person would be so brutalized through the scourging and the beating that they were not physically able to carry that crossbeam, so they would compel someone. This man was Simon of Cyrene, northern Africa, and they called this man out to carry the cross of Christ. And it appears that this man became a believer. It appears from Mark 15, verse 21, and Romans 16, verse 13, that he had a son named Rufus, became a leader in the church there in Rome. So it seems as if this was an impactful moment in this man's life. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, or in Latin means Calvary, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So they bring him there to Mount Calvary, skull, rock, and crucify him there. They try to give him gall to drink, bitter, spice, vinegar-like drink, 
drink known to deaden the senses a little bit, make this kind of pain a, a little more physically endurable, not much, but a little. And they offered it to Jesus, but notice that when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He wanted to experience completely everything that he was supposed to experience. He wa wanted to drink the cup which the Father had given him to drink. And when they crucified him, verse 35, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. It's interesting, you have all of these details about the events surrounding the crucifixion, things like the selling of his garments, a lot of these things fulfilling Old Testament scriptures. But the gospel writers rarely say much about the crucifixion itself, just when they had crucified him. It was a gruesome form of death, a long and painful process. The, the Romans had perfected this form of taking a human life to find and discover the most grueling, but at, as well the slowest form of death imaginable. Just a combination of pure torture and slow death. The open back of Christ would have been painfully rubbing up against the wood of the cross. The median nerve would be pierced through with the nails in his hands. His breathing would be near impossible. Insects and birds would for, for sometimes for days have their way with a victim who was not yet dead. They would lose blood. They would suffocate. They would dehydrate. They would die of heart attack or cardiac rupture. Oftentimes they would break the legs of those being crucified in order to expedite this process. And this whole thing was designed to produce in people who were passing by a fear of the Roman government. But it's so amazing, this cross of Christ, this shame that he endured. So ironic, because the very thing that they wanted to produce is the thing that was not produced. They wanted to produce shame. Jesus was shamed, but in receiving shame, he takes away our shame. In wanting to produce death, they were actually producing eternal life for millions of people. In wanting to silence a message, they were actually producing a megaphone for the message and actually creating a message in and of itself. In wanting to cause an offensive message and life in Jesus to be destroyed, they were actually creating the most offensive message that has ever existed, the stumbling block of the cross of Christ. And wanting to crush a movement in the cross, they actually created a movement. It's an incredible thing that as Jesus was being crucified, everything that they intended, the exact opposite was occurring. And you know, the reality today is that the enemy has so many plans for my life, so many plans for your life. 
But when you insert the cross of Calvary into that situation, your pain, your darkness, what the enemy intends for evil, God can use for great good. Now, after they'd crucified him, verse 35, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Again, this was a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 22, expressing and demonstrating the sovereignty of God. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And of course, we know from John chapter 19 that the religious leaders complained about this title, wanting Pilate to rewrite it to say uh, that he claimed to be the King of the Jews, but Pilate refused. Then two robbers, verse 38, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, which of course, if he had done, he could save no one with himself. But if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. But again, it's precisely because he was the son of God that we needed him to stay upon that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. But again, the irony, in order to save others, he could not save himself, preserve himself. He is the king of Israel, they said. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. It's interesting. They had such a short-term perspective. So often, this is the same perspective that we carry. If God is really God, and if God is really good, then why doesn't he, rather than thinking about the long-term ramification, the long-term thing that God is producing, they say, listen, if he's really trusting in God, if he's really the son of God, let God deliver him now. But because God refused to deliver him, God was making a way for many sons and daughters to come to glory. And even the robbers up there on the cross ridiculed him, the ultimate in shame for these men who were guilty to condemn the holy and innocent one. Now, we do know from Luke's gospel that eventually one of these men there on the cross, as he watched Jesus for those hours on the cross, realized that this man was something more than just a man, that he was innocent, they, he saw something in the reactions of Christ. And Jesus announced to this man, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So we have from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon. There was this, this darkness, an, an unnatural darkness that came a very supernatural event and uh, likely impossible that it would have been a natural eclipse due to the Passover 
and the full moon required for the Passover. And about the ninth hour, verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Now, Luke and John record other statements from Jesus there on the cross, but Matthew and Mark focus on this one particular statement from Jesus. First of all, three hours of darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. I believe that it was during this time that Jesus was suffering in the greatest and most intense way, not just physically, that was part of it, but experiencing a psychological pain and emotional pain. I don't know exactly what it was like, but Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so to have the sin of mankind crushing down upon you, and not only that, but he was drinking a cup, and it seems that he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God. That there was this turning from the Father away from the Son for this moment there upon the cross. And a horrible moment. At the end of it, Jesus shouted, it is finished. And so, you know, it, it appears that this is the moment that Jesus is atoning for the sin of mankind. Just a dark and horrible moment. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. One of the saddest verses in all of scripture to abandon, to forsake, to desert, to turn from the son. And of course it was our sin that required for the first time in all of eternity, this brokenness of fellowship between father and son as Jesus was reconciling God to the world through his own body. It pleased God to crush him. First Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10. And so there he is going through a horrible moment there upon the cross. But as, as much as it was one of the saddest verses in all of scripture, it's also one of the gladdest because it's a quotation from Psalm 22 verse 1. And anyone who was astute there that day could have gone back to Psalm 22 and read a detailed prophetic description of the events of the cross and seen that God was sovereignly moving in this moment. Now, the people that were there that day, they didn't know what to do with this whole thing. And they thought that Jesus was calling for Elijah and so they said, let's wait and see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus, verse 50, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, indicating a new relationship between God and man, that God was initiating a new covenant. The veil 
torn from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. There were actually people coming out of their graves, resurrected, you know, like Lazarus to die again, but just a powerful moment. And went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion, verse 54, who and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God, likely not in a salvation kind of sense, but they knew that there was something powerful there. And there were many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You have these devoted women serving the Lord. And so the new covenant now introduced because of the cross of Christ. And next time we'll see the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.